0: The reason uh, I chose that hymn, which I thought was well known, uh, was bec- <laughs> was, um, uh, was the words. Uh, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him seeking me. And that's going to be our theme. Uh, for the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, What accounts for our salvation? Is it something you do? Is it your decision? Is it your free will? Well, Mr. Anonymous of 1878 says, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew He moved my soul To seek him, seeking me. There was I thinking I was seeking the Lord, but actually he was seeking me. Now I'll try to speak uh, slowly with some pauses to take all the echo into a good effect. Uh, Tonight we're going to look at uh, the extent of sin, total depravity and the bondage of the will, and these are uh, enormously important and and deep and significant uh, issues. Uh, I've been hearing a little bit from uh, folk who uh, listen to this lecture every week, uh, download it and they listen to it while they're walking or doing their, their gymnastics or swimming or whatever it is they're doing. And uh, even heard from a couple of uh, folk uh, who disagree entirely with what I'm saying every week, uh, which is a lot of fun. And um, I imagine, I imagine uh, if you're going to disagree with anything at all, you're going to disagree with this one. Uh, because it's, um, it's the usual chestnut, isn't it? The, uh, the freedom of the will. Free will. Do I have free will? Uh, And that's the issue. And it it is a a corollary of, or a corollary, or corollary, however you Americans say this word, it is a consequence of the doctrine of sin. And last week, uh, we were looking at original sin, the imputation of Adamic sin to all of Adam's progeny. A consequence of what Paul is saying so very clearly in the fifth chapter of Romans. Now, tonight I want us to uh, talk about not just the imputation of Adam's sin to all of Adam's progeny, but how much of Adam's sin is imputed to Adam's progeny, the extent of it. So we're on a page, well, my mind doesn't... I was a page out every time last week. That's because I added a few lines after it was printed and consequently everything moved forward a page, but tonight I don't have any page numbers at all. So, uh, the page that has universal sinfulness, Romans 3 on the top of it. Within a few chapters of the narrative of the fall, Uh, In the time of Noah, uh, you have this extraordinarily important statement, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And John Murray, Professor John Murray I never saw Professor John Murray. If you want to, to know what he sounds like, you need to ask Dr. Ferguson because he can do a good uh, imitation of the sound of uh, John Murray. Uh, he, was, he was one of the most outstanding theologians, I think, of the 20th century. I had just had the immense privilege. It was very moving. Um, my wife and I, uh, within the last, I, I don't remember when it was, within the last year, uh, we stood at his grave, and a, a more extraordinary view uh, from that graveyard, um, you could not imagine, just an exquisitely beautiful uh, location and an immaculately kept uh, graveyard and, and John Murray is buried there. And I uh, came across this uh, some time ago. And, uh, He's commenting on Genesis 6 5. There is intensity. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. There was inwardness, the imagination of the thoughts of his heart, an expression unsurpassed in the usage of Scripture to indicate that the most rudimentary movement of thought was evil. There is the totality. Every imagination. There is the constancy. Continually. There is the exclusiveness. Only evil. There is the early manifestation from his youth. Well... There's a six-point sermon on that text there, for sure. Um, there's, no, there's no getting out. It's as, though, it's as though the doors are constantly being locked, whichever way you turn. Uh, the pervasiveness of sin in Adam's progeny. And Paul reaches that conclusion in Romans 3.9 nine. None is righteous. As he he surveys um, the totality of Jew and Gentile, there is, none is righteous, no, not one. Apart that is, of course, from the second Adam, the last man, Jesus, who is spotless, harmless, undefiled, and separate from Sinners. So that introduces us to um, the doctrine that we know of as total depravity. Some of you, of course, will immediately associate that with TULIP. Uh, I I spoke at a conference just a week or so ago, uh, and it was a reformed conference. Uh, So, on the stage, on the the days on which I was standing, were uh, pots with five tulips, lots of pots with five, not six, not four, but five tulips. Uh, T, of course, for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement or particular redemption, I for uh, irresistible grace or effectual calling and P, for the perseverance of the saints. These are five doctrines that emerged at the time of the Synod of Dort in 1618, 1619, as a result, as a a counter to articles of uh, Arminianism that had arisen uh, in the early part of the 17th uh, century. And uh, this is a consideration of uh, the first of those articles, total depravity uh, you you have it stated in the westminster confession in chapter 9 and verse uh, chapter 9 and section 3 a man by his fall into a state of sin has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able, by his own strength, to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Uh, Among other things, that is a a statement about total depravity and how depravity, the, the imputation of Adamic sin or original sin, has done something to the will of man, so that he is not able, he hasn't the ability to do anything to save himself. That thought uh, will recur throughout this evening's uh, study. Uh, The Confession had said something similar in an earlier chapter, in chapter 6, By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness, referring to Adam and Eve, and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. In other words, that sin has affected man as man. Man in his mind, man in his affections, man in his resolve, man in his motivations, man in his will. Whatever faculty that constitutes a human being, sin has affected that. Number three, the corruption of our whole nature. Uh, The corruption of our whole nature, uh, that's that's, uh, from the Shorter Catechism, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell, the answer of question 18 of the Shorter Catechism, the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, original sin, the want of original righteousness, And the corruption of his whole nature. And it's it's that that we're thinking about this evening. The corruption of the whole nature of man. However you define man in all the capacities of a human being. Which is commonly called original sin together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. So sin is not simply, uh, this is referring now to something that Augustine uh, Said, sin is not simply a privation or a lack. Um, it's not simply something negative. It is actually something that is present. It is something uh, that is uh, tangible. So Calvin puts it this way in his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion Our nature is not merely poor and empty of good, but so fertile and fruitful in all evils, that it cannot be idle. In other words, sin is a busy thing. It cannot be idle. Sin is more than mere privation, the absence of good. Uh, total, what do we mean when we say total depravity? Actually, we mean the same as when we speak of uh, a, a, a total uh, regeneration, when, when we are regenerated, uh, every aspect of us is regenerated. You know, you don't, have, you don't have bits of you, parts of you, compartments of you that have never been, that have never been affected uh, in any way by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Well, here, total depravity means uh, wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of body and soul. That's the technical uh, definition of the Shorter Catechism. Um, it doesn't mean total in the sense that we are all as sinful as we possibly could be. There is a range of sinfulness. Some are more sinful than others. Uh, We all accept that. Some sins are more sinful and more wicked than others and deserving of greater uh, punishment than others. So So the phrase total depravity needs to be handled with care, so we're not all equally evil, or as evil as we may one day become, or that we're all demons, but that there isn't an aspect of us, there isn't an aspect of our humanity uh, that isn't affected in some way by sin. Our wills, our affections, our, our, our psychology, uh, our, our motivations, our aspirations, every aspect of our humanity. Whatever that aspect is, is affected by sin. Well, let's, uh, let's explore that a little. The, the mind. The mind of the natural man, the Adamic man, the unconverted man or woman. The mind is affected by sin. He, he or she th- thinks wrongly. They have a wrong worldview. They think of God wrongly. What did Calvin say in the Institutes? Man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols. From the from the from original sin, from the Adamic imputation, the mind of the natural man thinks in a distorted way. It's an idolatrous mind. It negates what God affirms. It affirms what God negates. It twists. It distorts. It gets things wrong. That means, by the way, because of the effect of sin on the mind, it means that we need to repent of what we think. We we need to repent of how we think. There needs to be, well, let me use the phrase, Epistemological repentance, that's your phrase for your email this week. Our mind misshapes and distorts the truth. Our emotions, our emotional responses are affected by sin and and they require um, emotional or affectional Repentance our wills, the faculty of will. Uh, We'll explore this in more detail in a minute, but let me just get it out here onto the onto the table that as a result of sin, the will to respond is governed by considerations of ability and desire and motivation. And ability and desire and motivation are all of them affected by sin. We don't, we don't have the same ability because of sin. We don't have the same desire. We don't have the same motivation. The, the will is affected. It's tainted by sin. Uh, the body. The body is not in itself sinful, but the body may become the instrument and tool of the sin in the mind and inclination of the heart. So sin affects the body. So Paul uh, makes that exhortation in the sixth chapter of Romans, do not present your members uh, uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness and when he's, when he's talking about members, he's talking about the parts of our body, our hands. Be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little hands what you touch. Be careful little feet where you go. Now, all of that uh, has enormous implications for counseling. Emotional, motivational, affective, physical aspects are all infiltrated by sin, and all of that has... Huge implications for counselling. So that whatever, and, and there is a spectrum as far as theories of counselling uh, are concerned. But the, the only point I'm wanting to make here is that that theories of counselling must take into consideration the the radical nature of sin. Sin, as biblically defined, and and how that sin has has. Affected has warped, has has shaped the totality of the human being. So a, a comprehensive, I'm saying, a comprehensive Christian worldview must take into consideration sin, and it'll have all kinds of repercussions for secular, or integrative, or biblical counseling narratives. What, whatever view of counseling you have, it, it has to take into consideration sin and how sin affects the mind and how it affects the emotions and how it affects the will and how it affects things like desire and motivation and aspiration. And I've, uh, I've uh, elaborated on on some uh, counselling views that are out there in uh, the wide world—cognitive uh, behavioural, uh, object relations, humanistic psychology—each um, one uh, giving credence to one aspect of humanity, uh, whether the mind or the emotions or the or the will. Uh, but I'm saying, what, whatever view of counselling you have, it, it has to take into consideration the the, the issue of uh, of sin and sin. On the natural man, sin on the Adamic man, and what that what that does. Now let's uh, let's uh, say something about conscience. Yes, that sin also affects the conscience. Conscience is not an infallible guide. Now it is never it is never safe to go against conscience for sure. But conscience needs to be instructed too. You can have a conscience about something because it's ill-informed, because it needs to be instructed. Uh, that should be—it is not a fallible guide. Uh, if you have a pen, please please put that in, because uh, that should, conscience—it is not a fallible, uh, um, it is not an infallible guide. So it is a fallible. Right? No, I'm right. It's a fallible guide. Uh, due to, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, let's move on to free will. Let's talk about free will. Uh, quick history lesson. Uh, let's, uh, let's traverse a thousand years in, uh, in less than uh, a couple of minutes. Uh, Pelagius, we've talked about Pelagius before, 4th, uh, 5th century, um, Welsh or Irish. I like to think he was Irish, but but the odds are that he was probably Welsh. Uh, finds himself a monk. Uh, finds himself in uh, Rome, uh, disputing something that Augustine had uh, had written uh, in his Confessions uh, to uh, to command uh, to command. Uh, uh, um, Give what you command and command what you will, Augustine had said. Give what you command and command what you will. And uh, Pelagius saw that as a, as a, a philosophy for license. Uh, he saw that as a philosophy that would lead to license, to, to sinful uh, behavior, to irresponsibility. Uh, and argued in the course of his argument with uh, Augustine uh, Argued that subsequent to the fall human beings may choose not to sin. That they have that ability. They have free will in the absolute sense. Free will in the sense of the power of contrary choice. They may choose whatever they desire to choose. And they may desire whatever they will. So for Pelagianism, strict Pelagianism, salvation at least that the point of its application, is entirely, entirely a matter of human choosing. Now, there's a modified form of polygynism that appears at the time of the Reformation that we, we sometimes call semi polygynism or you may call it semi-Pelagianism. Um, but before we look at that, let's, uh, let's remind ourselves of Augustine, uh, Augustine of Hippo, Uh, one of the great giants, uh, one of the great colossal uh, giants of the Christian Church who got things wonderfully right and wonderfully wrong at the same time. And uh, you could say that Augustine is the champion of uh, the Reformation on on the things that he got right, and he's the champion of uh, Roman Catholicism on the things that he got wrong. And uh, he was equally right and I think equally wrong, tragically wrong, but he's a huge, hugely significant figure uh, in uh, church history. And he writes now it was expedient that man should be at first so created as to have it in his power both to will what was right and to will what was wrong. He's talking about Adam. And he's saying when God created Adam, God created Adam with free will. He could. He could choose the right, and he could choose the wrong. This is before the fall. So Adam, before the fall, was able to sin, and he was able to not sin. And Augustine, of course, is writing in Latin, so he gives it these wonderful and very memorable little phrases, posse pecare, posse non pecare. And uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a table here, and uh, we're not going to look at all the table. We'll, we'll come back to this next year. Sometime, when we talk about uh, the application of redemption, when we talk about uh, regeneration, what does God need to do, and what does God do in order to bring a sinner into a relationship with Himself, and what condition does that does that individual then find himself in? Uh, so we'll come back to this uh, this little table. But Augustine is saying that before the fall, man was able to sin, Adam was able to sin, and able to not sin. But after the fall, he was still able to sin, but actually he was unable to not sin. The double negative. Right? He he could only sin. Everything he did, even even the good things he did, were tainted with sin. He's not saying that the, nat- that the natural Adamic man after the fall cannot do anything that's good at all, but even the good that he does is sinful. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not righteous. So posse picare and non posse non pecare. But, but Pelagianism. Uh, Pelagianism... Uh, in its early form, then, uh, is, is, is a view that suggests that man, um, Adamic man, fallen man, the natural man, has free will in the absolute sense. It was condemned uh, at the Council of Carthage uh, in 418, and the Council of Ephesus in 431, and the Council of Orange the Second Council of Orange in uh, 529. It had a triple whammy condemnation. Now, semi-Pelagianism arises during the time of the Reformation. It's a kind of compromise um, on the the view of Pelagius in the 5th century, and it taught, and again, contrary to Augustine, that God's grace is not necessary for the free will to begin to act rightly that is necessary for growing in grace. But at the point of its inception, at the point of choosing, man has free will at the point of choosing. Now both Pelagianism and Semi-Pelagianism, and and Semi-Pelagianism, you can can think of Semi-Pelagianism as Arminianism, actually Arminianism is a form of Semi-Pelagianism. Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism have in common the understanding of the essential freedom of the will. Now, there are some uh, very significant writings uh, now uh, on the other side of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, including writings by uh, Augustine uh, and uh, Luther, uh, Luther's Bondage of the Will, uh, 1525. Uh, let, me, let me allude to what uh, Luther says uh, in the bondage of the will, you and you alone have seen the question. He's writing to, to Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus is the, is the, the humanist uh, of the 16th century that uh, Luther is contending with, and Erasmus is, is voicing semi-Pelagian views. And Luther is thanking him because in voicing those views he has brought to center stage what Luther saw as absolutely important. You and you alone have seen the question on which everything hinges, and have aimed at the vital spot for which I sincerely thank you, since I am only too glad to give you as much attention as time and leisure permit. Luther saw that the denial of free will was implied in the doctrines of free grace and justification by faith alone. If, if you're going to advocate, as Luther did, that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, apart from the works of the law, you can't, you can't bring in human will, human initiative, human desire, human aspiration, because that would be a work. That would be something that, that we do, for which, for which we could take credit. And Luther wants to say that salvation is apart from human merit whatsoever. It is all entirely of God and none of us. We can't take credit for for anything. So Luther is saying that the doctrine of free will, this issue of free will, is more important than justification by faith alone. Because justification by faith alone hinges on getting this issue right, free will. I was uh, hunting high and low today in my library for Luther's bondage of the will. Uh, I knew I had the book. I could tell you the color of it. And eventually, after probably 20 attempts to walk up and down my shelves to find it, And then going and doing something else and then coming back and looking again and then couldn't see it and and coming back. And eventually I found it and uh, found my treasured copy uh, that I bought in 1972, a year after I'd been converted. Uh, And uh, I was fascinated to see the scribbles that I'd written in the margin uh, of Luther's bondage of the will. And uh, Luther Luther said somewhere, Uh, He said there were only two books worth saving. Uh, His children's catechism and the bondage of the will, and that they could burn the rest as far as he was concerned. Now, Luther was given to that kind of hyperbole. You understand, don't even think of burning Dr. Ferguson's books and asking him which two does he want to save. Um, But it it is fascinating. I find that absolutely fascinating, that Luther would say that, that his children's catechism... Getting sound biblical doctrine into the minds of young children. That, that, was, that was so important to him. But The Bondage of the Will he saw as, uh, as the most important book um, that he had written. Uh, and then some other books by uh, Calvin, and uh, we, need, we need to move on. Let's, let's move on, and, and Jonathan Edwards, uh, The Freedom of the Will. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, look at uh, free agency and free will, point number seven, free agency and free will. Uh, we need to make a, a distinction between free agency and free will. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and others spoke of uh, free will in two senses, uh, in, in times past in if you're reading in church history, for example, it all gets rather confusing because they use, they use the term free will in two ways. They mean it in a, in a kind of simple sense and they mean it in a more complex sense, in a trivial sense and an important sense. But that that kind of gets confusing because they, they mean different things, but they're using the same term, free will. So in recent years, and I'm, I mean in the last 200 years, the church has adopted two different terms for these trivial, and important uh, distinctions. One is called free agency, and the other is called free will. And I want to talk about the first one now, free agency. All of us have free agency. Adam had free agency. Fallen Adam had free agency. The unconverted natural man has free agency. The regenerate person has free agency It's part of what constitutes humanity. Uh, Sometimes called free will in the trivial sense, Calvin. Sometimes called natural liberty in the Westminster Confession. Sometimes called liberium arbitrium in Augustine, but today known as free agency. God, uh, here it is in the Confession, God has endued the will of man with that natural ability, that natural liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. In other words, we're not, we're not robots. It's a, it's a statement against the idea of determinism in the absolute sense. We're not, we're not forced to do uh, we're not. We're not like robots. We're not automatons. We're not. We're not merely programmed. Uh, James one fourteen. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. In, in other words, our actions are the result of our own desire. Right? We have. We have desire. We have. We have a. We have a natural liberty. We, we have a free agency. It's a necessary mark of human beings as such. That we are moral agents, responsible agents, culpable for our actions. We have to answer for our actions. Uh, Bottom of the page, John Murray's... uh, Quote here, man wills or chooses to act. If he does not will to act, if the act is contrary to his will, then the event occurring through his instrumentality is not in reality his action. He is the victim, victim of some other power or agent over which he is not able to exercise control, and so he is not responsible for the event. We sometimes use the expression "I did it against my will." And Murray says, that isn't correct. We may do things reluctantly, do things we detest, but if we do them, it is because we will to do them. We will to do the distasteful rather than not do it. Something may be done against our will, and strictly speaking, we are not the agents, but when we we do something... It is always because we willed the same. On the simple level, we have, uh, we have freedom of choice. Uh, Dwight chose to wear this South Carolinian bow tie, blue and yellow. I'm sure he has 50, 100 bow ties of varying colors, but this was a blue and yellow day. He may have put on a pink one or a green one, or a red one, and then taken it off and decided, no, no, it's a blue and yellow day. That's a, that's a choice. It's a human faculty. And uh, no one is or should deny that. Right? Augustine insisted that fallen man retains that. He, he called it, because he's Latin, He called it liberium arbitrium, uh, but he loses libertas. In other words, he has free agency, but he loses free will. Free agency is something that is essential to being a human being. In distinction from that, there is something called free will. And let's drop down to free will. Uh, Number C there, free will. By free will, we mean something different. The, the ability to choose all the moral options, or, or what's sometimes known as the power of contrary choice. And original sin removes that ability, so that the Adamic, the Adamic man, the natural man, the unconverted human being, does not have free will. He has free agency, but he doesn't have free will. He cannot choose all the possible choices that there are out there. He can only choose within his nature. He can only choose as his nature confines him to choose. You know, ferrets... Do you all know what a ferret is, right? But ferrets are, have by nature, the ability to and it is there, it is their it is their inclination to climb into holes and into drain pipes. That is their nature. That is their free agency. That is what they do. That is what they choose to do. But if you blind them, they can't find the holes. They can't find the drain pipes. They still have free agency, but they don't have free will. They've lost the ability to do what their original nature inclined them to do. The will of the fallen man can only will within the limitations of his nature, or within the limitations of the dispositional complex. That's a great term. That's a John Murray term. Um, Out of the heart are the issues of life. The issues of life come out of our hearts, out of what we are. If our hearts are fallen, what comes out is fallen. The dispositional complex, the inclination of the fallen man or woman is not Godward. So we have no natural ability to to discern and choose God's way because we have no natural inclination Godward. Our hearts are in bondage to sin. Right? Only, only regeneration, the grace of regeneration, can free us from that inability. Right? Our volition is determined by our inward disposition, by what we are. Now, what are the motivations that lie behind? behind belief in free will. Those who believe that we still retain free will, that the Adamic man, that the natural man, the unconverted man or woman, still has free will. And, And there are usually five sort of lines of thought. One is, if we have no free will, we are not responsible for our actions. And that was Pelagius' concern. If you don't have free will, you're not responsible for your actions. On what grounds does the Bible base responsibility? And the Bible bases responsibility on the fact that you have lost that ability. You are responsible for having lost your free will. Or free will is essential in the image of God. God. Right? In other words, without free will, we are merely, we are merely puppets on a divine string. Actually, that's, that's to fail to distinguish between free agency and free will. Or that the denial of free will undermines both human effort and morality. If we have no free will, why does God command righteousness? What's the point of evangelism if people don't have the ability to respond? In other words, that responsibility implies ability. If I ought, I can. That's, that's the Pelagian maxim. If I ought, it must be because I can. Uh, and then there are some other lines of thought that the Bible teaches free will, and that's to sort of assume the answer. Uh, Free will dislodges God from culpability in the so-called problem of evil. And those are usually the motivations, some of the the theological, philosophical motivations that that lie behind uh, the the belief that we still have free will. Here's what the Bible says. That the natural man is in a state of inability. Original sin Deals with our depravity. Inability deals with the fact that our, depra- our own depravity is humanly irremediable. Now, drop down to biblical considerations. First uh, Corinthians 2.14. What does Paul mean when he says that the natural person, that's the unconverted person, the, the Adamic person, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to Him. He is not able. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's that's Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the natural man does not have the ability to understand spiritual things. He is not able. Jeremiah 13, 23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. In other words, what we will is the result of what we are. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the dispositional complex, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or John 6, 44, 45, 65. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You do not have the ability to come unless my Father draws you, Jesus says. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets... And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Uh, Romans 8, 7, and 8. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Or uh, think of Nicodemus. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Nicodemus is a Bible teacher. Nicodemus is the greatest Bible teacher of Jesus' day. Except a man is born again, or or perhaps born from above. An act of divine sovereignty. Except a man is born from above, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. He cannot see. He does not have the ability to see or enter the kingdom of God. The natural man isn't just sick. He's not just in the ER. He's not just on life support. He's dead. He's dead. Now, that assertion, of the loss of free will, not the loss of free agency, but the loss of free will, the power of contrary choice, the ability to choose all the moral options that are out there, that the natural man has lost that ability. He can only choose within, within his dispositional complex, he can only choose from within the, his nature, is, it is alleged, a counsel of despair. What do we say to that? And it is only when you see that the only, the only option, right, the only option that is left to us is to say, nothing in my hands I bring. Nothing. Not my will, not my motives, not my desires, not any effort on my part nothing in my hands i bring i am wholly and absolutely and totally dependent on the grace of almighty god actually actually before we appreciate grace we have to understand the despairing circumstances in which we are in that the natural man is dead the natural man has no ability The natural man has no hope, and his only hope lies in the grace of the Lord Jesus to call upon him who has said, If you call upon me, I will save you. I will come to you. Uh, What's the point of evangelism? If uh, if the natural man doesn't have free will, what's the point of evangelism? What's the point in saying to somebody that that they need to be converted if they they have no ability, if they have no ability to respond? Now, if you take the opposite view that man does have the ability to respond, then you should do everything within your power to maximize the chances of him making that response, uh, which is uh, the theology of uh, Charles Grandison Finney, of the second uh, great awakening uh, in the uh, 19th uh, century. Um, look at uh, look at uh, his picture there, Charles Grandison Finney, uh, the man responsible for decisionism, for the anxious seat, uh, for making for for appealing to the will of the natural man to do whatever it is to excite that will and make sure that that will is determined Godward. So, so, man is perfectly free at any time to lay down his arms in surrender. So, the whole work of the Spirit of God in conversion is to present uh, vividly to man's mind reasons for making this surrender. To, to making that moral persuasion. Make him feel as anxious as he possibly can so that he will make that decision for Jesus. But it seems to me that the Bible is saying the very opposite. That what the Bible says is that we, we have no hope, we have, we have no ability we have absolutely no hope within ourselves. I wanted to. Um, I end here with two little, uh, two little quotations. Uh, they're from sermons. Uh, one by Robert Murray McShane, uh, and the other by, by Spurgeon. And let me let me take Spurgeon's. Uh, this is Spurgeon's sermon on John five forty. Uh, he calls it free will a slave. Uh, look at the date. Uh, it's in, it's in um, I didn't give you the date, but it was in 18, Yes, 1855. That's right at the very beginning of Spurgeon's ministry. It's in uh, the New Park Street Church. Uh, Spurgeon is a very young man. Uh, just read the sermon. This is a young man's rhetoric here for sure. Uh, ye will not come to me that ye might have life. That's the text. Right? You will not come that you might have life. Uh, his first point: He first points out that humans are dead both legally, uh, spiritually, and eternally. And then he says, um, The will is well known by all to be directed by the understanding, to be moved by motives, to be guided by other parts of the soul, and to be a secondary thing. The will is a function of a character. And then he says, Anyone who believes that a man's will is entirely free and that he can be saved by it does not believe in the fall. Why, beloved? The fall broke up man entirely. It did not leave one power unimpaired. The will, too, is not exempt. Your will amongst other things, has gone clean astray from God. You will not come, but then your will is a sinful will. You have heard a great many Arminian sermons, I dare say, but you never heard an Arminian prayer, for the saints in prayer appear as one in word and deed and mind. An Arminian on his knees would pray desperately like a Calvinist. He cannot pray about free will. There is no room for it. Fancy him praying, and and he imagines now an Arminian, true to his beliefs, praying. And he'd say something like this. Lord, I thank thee that I'm not like these poor, presumptuous Calvinists. Lord, I was born with a glorious free will. I was born with a power by which I can turn to Thee of myself. I have improved my grace. If everybody had done the same with their grace as I have, they might all have been saved. Lord, I know that Thou dost not make us willing if we are not willing ourselves. It was not Thy grace that made us differ. I made use of what was given me and others did not. That is the difference between me and them. Spurgeon says, that's a prayer for the devil. For nobody else would offer such a prayer as that. Do you see what he's saying? The doctrine of uh, the loss of free will locks us entirely into grace. The only thing that can save us. The only thing that can rescue us. It's all of God and none of me well i'm sure there are questions and uh, at the end of this little uh, term uh, the first week of june i think uh, we're going to have a q and a session and I, I need you to be thinking about your your questions uh, you can always uh, email questions or there's a There's a Facebook page and a a Twitter page for this uh, course, and you can send your uh, questions there uh, too. Uh, But this uh, this, uh, alarming consequence of the extent of sin and the loss of of free uh, will. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are by nature Adamic inheritors of original sin. And out of that corruption, out of that disposition come ramifications for the way we think by nature, the way we feel by nature, the way we desire, what it is that we will, our motivations, everything about us. And while we were dead in trespasses and in sins, when we were without hope you displayed your sovereign mercy and grace. When we cried in our helplessness, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, utterly undone and without hope, you extended your spirit to renew our wills in the day of your power, to restore our affections, to give us a new heart, And to draw us toward Yourself. Father, we thank You. And as we come before You tonight, it is what we feel the most, that our salvation is utterly and completely and wholly dependent upon what You have done. All of You and none of us. So hear us, receive our thanks for salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Apart from the works of the law, nothing in our hands we bring simply to thy cross, we claim. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.